Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vertical Space, a podcast at the intersection of technology and flight. We are your hosts, Jim Barry and Luka Tomjanovic, and here we look at the most important forces shaping the market of advanced air mobility, with a particular focus on why and how they matter to those building a business in this very exciting and growing industry. It's a touchy subject because every however many years, there's a serious discussion in the U.S. about, quote, privatizing air traffic. There are some people in the community that would see the things that we're talking about as sort of the camel's nose under the tent as a slippery slope to all of a sudden, you know, the FAA air traffic organization is going to be privatized. And if people are coming into the conversation not aware of that background, there's some serious landmines that they can step on. You've just heard the voice of Brandon Suarez, who works at General Atomics on technologies required for the safe integration of large military unmanned aircraft into the national airspace system. We recorded the conversation in early October 2021, and it was such an interesting discussion that we got carried away, completely lost track of time, and ended up with more than an hour and a half worth of gold. We did our best to edit the podcast down to a reasonable length, but we just didn't want to leave a lot of good content out. That's why this episode is a bit longer than usual. Anyway, what's coming up is a conversation about autonomy, certification, technology and standards, integration of unmanned aircraft into the national airspace system, and a lot more. You'll hear Brandon discuss how the internet approach to product development does not necessarily work in aviation, how autonomy will likely be rolled out in terms of mission sets and types of aircraft, how to build trust in autonomy, and how important it is for new entrants into the world of air mobility to understand the environment they are stepping into. This and much more coming up right after our sponsor message. This episode of the Vertical Space Podcast is brought to you by UAvionics. UAvionics is the leader in low-size, weight, and power certified avionics for manned, unmanned, and advanced air mobility aircraft. Let UAvionics help you achieve your goals, whether that be type certification, airspace access, or beyond visual line of sight operations. UAvionics has certified and certifiable communications, navigation, and surveillance avionics for your aircraft. So head over to uavionics.com or Google it to see how you can start flying safer and move your platform forward into shared airspace. We're in for a treat today. I'm excited to have Brandon Suarez as our guest today. Brandon is a technical director for the integration of remotely piloted aircraft systems into the civil airspace for General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, for those of you who have not been paying attention for, call it almost 30 years, GAASI is a leader in large drones, especially for the military markets globally. And Brandon leads there a team that's solving the technical and regulatory challenges that are standing in the way of safe and efficient integration of, uh, of UAS into the civil airspace so that these vehicles can share the sky with all the other airspace participants. Previously at General Atomics, Brandon worked on the technology stack to provide the Predator B, one of those RPAS, with detect and avoid capability. Brandon is also very active on the regulatory and standards development fronts. He is a co-chair of RTCA Special Committee 228, which is tasked with developing technical standards for uh, UAS on the detect and avoidance C2 fronts primarily. He also serves as vice chairman of, or served as vice chairman of NATO Industrial Advisor Group Study, Group 205, 
providing industry recommendations to NATO on how to standardize, detect, and avoid capabilities for militaries around the world. Brandon has both a bachelor and a master's degree in aerospace engineering from MIT, and he's also an instrument-rated private pilot. Brandon, what an amazing experience so far. I feel we could talk for hours. My biggest fear, I think, for today's discussion is just running out of time. Um, <laughs> so thanks a lot for taking a break from UAS Aerospace Integration to be with us on our show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a real honor to be here and be talking to you today. Definitely uh, looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Likewise, a fun fact, one of our previous conversations, Brandon told me that his wife was actually his first passenger after receiving his pilot <laughs> license and together with their four kids. I think they still frequently go on on flight adventures around the country, which is great because when I took my wife up for the first time, she had a terrible experience and I'm still trying to dig myself out of that hole. So well done, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's uh, I, I joke. That's how I knew she was the one. So let's jump right into the discussion. Is there anything that very few in the industry agree with you on? This is an interesting one. I would say that there is a tendency to bring a philosophy from, you know, sort of internet internet startup software space into aviation, uh, which is goes something like, you know, if we just collect enough data, uh, we'll be able to do X, Y, and Z, right? Prove something to the regulator, develop some functionality, some capability. And I've I found myself oftentimes warning people against that uh, mentality, which sometimes puts me at odds with a lot of, the, especially new folks in the community. You know, we've been working on the UAS integration into the NAS problem for you know well well over 20 years now as a as a company as a community of interest, and we have learned this lesson the hard way of you can't just bring in data to the rest of the community, uh, be it the regulator or the larger stakeholder community in aviation, you know, you really, really do at some point have to roll up your sleeves, do the hard work of systems engineering, you know, system design, security design, and go through a, a really formal process in in certification. So yeah, it definitely doesn't always make me the most popular person in the room, but uh, <laughs> that, that that is one thing that I uh, I keep harping on. That's interesting. And do you think that this phenomenon is because there are a lot of innovators coming from other industries into aerospace, or is it because we're just faced with some unknowns and technical challenges that we just need the data to prove the safety case? Yeah, I think it's a um, it's definitely a combination of some different perspectives, which are healthy and, and good. And actually, there's there's been many ways that having new voices and new ideas in the community has been has been great over the last you know, decade or so. I think it's also that, you know, we're coming into an ecosystem that that is very much centered around human performance, right? We, we rely, aviation relies very much on a lot of very highly skilled, highly trained, qualified individuals doing a phenomenal job on a day in, day out basis. And so there's a tendency as we bring autonomy into aviation that we, we try to just pluck those people out and replace automation into exactly what they're doing. And the challenge is that oftentimes defining what that human is doing is actually really hard, <laughs> you know, and just collecting more data to, to try to substantiate, you know, that case um, is is just not something that um, that translates well into this space for some reason. I haven't quite figured out why yet. Let's talk about autonomy. The UAS systems that certainly you work on have a great deal of autonomous capability built into them. Why do we need autonomous aircraft, autonomous UAS in the first place? Yeah, this there's a couple of ways to approach this. Um, 
in general, aviation is a global good, right? We can, you know, today after 40, 60, 80 years of evolution, right? We, we can very quickly and almost seamlessly move people and goods around the world, connecting, you know, connecting people, connecting businesses. The reality is that, you know, the last 80 years have, have been a, a steady progression towards higher levels of automation. In, in a lot of ways, the levels of safety that we enjoy today in commercial aviation are attributable to the, the sort of steady march of increasing the automation on, on board the aircraft, in the air traffic management system, uh, in the design process even of, of aircraft and air traffic systems. And so in, in a lot of ways, when we talk about the new entrance, you know, novel concepts, this, these new automated autonomous aircraft that folks are coming up with, it's, it's actually, I find helpful to just talk about it as part of the evolution of aviation. And when we think about how we're going to achieve the next 30 years, 50 years of growth, it's, it's really that evolution that, that's going to make it possible, right? Higher levels of automation, enabling more efficient use of the aircraft we have, more efficient use of the airspace we have, of the airports that we have, and, and ultimately being able to spread jet transportation or, or just transportation in general to more people and more places and more businesses. And, and ultimately, you know, that's why we need this. I often hear people make claims that one, one claim in particular that I'm sort of sensitive to is saying, well, roughly 80% of all accidents are caused by human factors and human error. So let's remove the, the human out of that equation. And there you go. We have increased safety mm -hmm. significantly, yeah. uh, which I think is really short-sighted because, right. yeah, you're just moving people from one place of the of the system of systems to another and you're not eliminating the error to the contrary you might be opening up new sources of, of errors that you can't even envision today and you won't until you start experimenting with the technology absolutely yeah absolutely i mean you look back at um i mean there's, there's so many good examples but i mean even you look back at the shuttle program right which could have flown itself to orbit and back and it it wasn't the the automation that or that anything that anyone had thought of that ultimately took down Columbia. It was, you know, a, a, a situation that, man, who, who would have ever thought a foam block falling off of the external fuel tank would take down, <laughs> you right. know, would break the leading edge. Yeah. So I, I think that I, I totally agree with you that that is, um, it's, it might sound good uh, in certain audiences, but um, yeah, I, I don't think that argument withstands the test of time. Certainly in the military domain, there's a lot of value to take the the human out of that situation if you are conducting a dangerous mission or really long endurance flights where you run into physiological limitations of humans. Yeah. But but how does that map to the civil side, right? Do you envision that we necessarily need pilotless airliners? At what point is the incremental cost greater than the perceived benefit of receiving that one extra seat revenue? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to say from the outside of any discussion of, of autonomy is that not every aircraft, not every application lends itself to high levels of automation. Yeah, there's there's plenty of aircraft missions that, yeah, you, you really do want someone on the airplane for mission reasons or, yeah, like, like you were suggesting, just for cost reasons, right? It, it, it may not make sense to replace or, or to put more technology on the aircraft. <laughs> I was sort of thinking this weekend, you know, I, I live here in San Diego, we're pretty close to the coast. And so on the weekend, you know, it's sort of a constant stream of uh, banner tower aircraft going up and down the coast. Right? <laughs> 
they're right. just chugging along at whatever 50 knots or something and, and it's like man that that would be such a great uh mission to to use an unmanned aircraft for uh and then and, you know then you think about it a little bit more you're like okay well you know you got a pilot on board who is really just trying to build hours probably not getting paid much unfortunately you got an airplane that's probably 50 60 years old and you know that's designed for daytime vfr really not a sophisticated machine man that that operation is not high value it, it probably would never make sense to put an automation system on board to to take the human off of that airplane <laughs> totally right totally right so okay well help our audience cut through the noise why is autonomy and you know, more specifically autonomous operations in the national airspace system. Why is that such a challenge? Or is it? I mean, doesn't the military already do that all the time? Yeah, I think I think the bottom line is is that in commercial aviation, product development is hard. There's very high barriers to entry in aviation. You know, you look at it, it's a cap. It's obviously a capital intensive process. And you ask, why is it such a capital intensive process? You know, the, the processes involved in certifying products in aviation are are tedious in a lot of cases. And that long payback timeline, right? If, if you've got to spend years developing a product and you're not going to see a return, you know, you're okay. Now you're asking for really quick scale, but that's also hard in aviation, right? Where you're, you're manufacturing uh, really bespoke systems in the end. Uh, we don't, you know, aviation doesn't have the scale of uh, the automotive industry or of the consumer electronics industry, and that that really pushes those timelines out pretty far, and and makes it a difficult investment opportunity. You know, if if nothing else, you meet somebody in the street, and you're talking about automation with advanced mobility, and they said, "What's the what's the real value of automation?" And how would you answer that? And then. What are we going to see that will be first and easiest to have uh, autonomy and what will be the most complex and, and perhaps less value? Yeah, so I, I think that the answer will ultimately have to come down to safety. You're, you're going to have to be able, I think we as a community will have to be able to look, you know, <laughs> average member of the public in the eye and say, this operation that you want to do, you want to go from point A to point B, you want to, you know, you want your package to get delivered at this time. That that requires us to use the air and to put a vehicle up in the air, to move it very quickly to get somewhere. And that operation just can't be done safely with a human in the loop the way that it's done today. And it's going to be certified and it's going to meet, you know, high levels of safety and, and the rigor associated with, with all of those things. But we've got to bring equipment, hardware and software to bear on this on this particular problem. And I think ultimately, you know, if if we're going to sort of win the hearts and minds of, of the public, it, it's going to end up being a, a a good that comes out of the addition of these aircraft into the airspace, and then the the assurance that those particular operations are going to be conducted with the level of safety that, frankly, everyone's come to expect from aviation, right? Which is which is very mm -hmm. high, at least the portion of aviation that the public sees on a daily basis. But I but I do think I'll I'll, I'll kind of tie those last couple of points together to say that unless we we really break the um, the process to to bring a new product to the market in commercial aviation, and it's going to be capital intensive process. It's going to involve a lot of people and a lot of testing, a lot of development activities. That's going to mean that we will most likely see the first applications in relatively high value mission sets. 
airline operations are really high value operations, right? They're, those are very expensive airplanes that are operating at very high frequencies, you know, high utilizations. And, and so really those applications may end up being the most prime for these technologies to come in to to the commercial ecosystem. Can you describe the process of, of baking autonomy into product development? Sure. I mean, I, I think the important thing for anyone to remember is aviation is a highly regulated ecosystem. <laughs> you know, whether we like it or not, whether we think that's the way it should be or not, it is. And and so we're coming into an environment, an environment that has a lot of stakeholders, has a lot of sort of guardians, right? People that want the status quo to stay the way it is because they know it, they think they understand it, and it achieves a very high level of performance. And so the aviation ecosystem has put up a lot of processes over the past, let's say, 80 years. When we think about product development, that's going to naturally include system development processes, right? So the standards around how to do system development system safety, the systems engineering aspects of product development, but also this, the level of standardization in software development, complex electronic hardware development, and even the development of particular technologies. You look at the amount of standardization around navigation, it's mind boggling. You know, the level of detail to get to a GPS chip that everyone trusts to navigate an airplane is just incredible. No no single company or person developed that on their own. That that was a an effort of hundreds of companies, hundreds of individuals working for you know, thousands of man years. <laughs> and the result is a very predictable, very, very reliable product. Are you talking are you talking about generally GPS or or more specifically putting that into a certified product? Yeah, re really, any any of the technologies that we think of, uh, I mean, historically, right, communication, navigation, surveillance, we think about, you know, terrain avoidance systems or uh, airborne collision avoidance systems. Those are all things that are, are highly standardized. And to deviate from those standards really requires an appreciation for the, the level of level of effort that went into getting to that point to begin with. Where are we in terms of converging on a set of standards for autonomous operation of UIS? And what does that translate into timelines? Yeah, so my opinion, I guess I should have said that in the beginning, these are all my opinions. I, I don't I don't represent my company at this point. But my, you know, my, my opinion is that the technology exists to bring a, an aircraft with no humans on board to the market to fly through controlled airspace to land at big airports and to and to act and feel like a like a conventional aircraft today. I think the challenge is that there's a lot of folks in the community that don't like the technology that enables that right now. <laughs> Elaborate, uh, please. From my perspective, you know, being involved in in the RTCA, I mean, RTCA is standards development organization. It's been around for a long time, but it, it's really sort of sweet spot is in the area of the, these classic aviation technologies that require standards because everyone is going to be interacting with each other. So communication, navigation, surveillance are the, are the classic examples of that. RTCA stood up a committee in 2003 or 2005, I forget, uh, Special Committee 203. And that, that group you know, was comprised of a lot of the, the real visionaries in this community, got to work on standards for unmanned aircraft systems at the time and did did a did a ton of work, a ton of foundational work. And but but we actually ended up 
as a community deciding that that process was taking too long, <laughs> ironically. Hmm. Uh, and Special Committee 228 was stood up in 2013. And the goal of that committee right from the beginning was to develop te detailed technical standards called MOPS, Minimum Operational Performance Standards, for just two technologies, you know, which are still considered sort of the critical technologies, detect and avoid and command and control data links. Well, those standards were published in 2017. So in 2017, you know, we had we had detailed technical standards to to go build and certify a line of sight data link, which could be networked to enable beyond radio line of sight, beyond visual line of sight operations, and a, a detect and avoid system based off of TCAS2 and an air-to-air -air primary radar uh, that would enable you know operations up and through and uh, Class A and um, in and out of you know busy terminal areas. And Brandon, um, this was for large UAS, as you said, transitioning through some controlled airspace on their way to a special purpose airspace or class A airspace and back, correct? You know, it's interesting. We we never had as a constraint any particular size or, yeah, well, I guess size of aircraft would be the right way to say it. So what, what we really tried to do was think about how how do aircraft operate in today's airspace, right? What, what are the expectations of an aircraft under instrument flight rules? And you think about if, if a controller calls up an aircraft and says climb to such an altitude, what rate do they actually expect that aircraft to climb at? Turns out we settled on 500 feet per minute. You know, mm -hmm. if, if, you, if you're told to go to a new heading, what turn rate is a controller actually expecting that aircraft to make? Standard rate turns are three degrees per second, right? So, and then you look at, um, okay, well, how, how much, you know, power does this aircraft need to have, right? How much airspeed does it need to have? Well, those things are, are sort of, they don't really matter a whole lot. I mean, you have to stay below certain speed limits in class B airspace and below 10,000 feet. But beyond that, there, there really aren't a lot of constraints. It turns out that, you know, the biggest constraint is really just carrying all the equipment that you need to be an aircraft in the NAS. You know, you think about having to carry navigation equipment, radios, having to carry around uh, surveillance like transponders and adding TCAS in, that's a, a lot of a bigger box. The detect and avoid standards require an air-to-air -air radar that has to detect aircraft out at, you know, six miles, eight miles. So that physics sort of dictate, okay, if I'm going to I'm going to send a signal out and receive it back on this kind of small target. Uh, that just sort of has implications for the amount of power that needs to be generated on the aircraft, which, sorry, just takes me back to the point I was making about not everyone being happy with the particular technologies because it, they do place constraints. You know, when, when you start stacking up all of the expectations of an aircraft in today's NAS, uh, you end up placing you might call them artificial, but it's sort of constraints based on physics to some, <laughs> to some extent, which most people in aviation had historically taken for granted because to, to get an aircraft up in the air, to get it above 10,000 feet, let's say, you you kind of just had to have certain things on board to keep a person comfortable, right? The, the aircraft had to be so big to carry a certain number of people to, to make sense to bring to market. And when you remove the people, you sort of remove all those biological constraints, right? And you can do things with aircraft, you know, the size of aircraft, the speed of aircraft, the dynamics of aircraft that you couldn't do when you had to carry six people or 20 people or 100 people. So that, that's really the disconnect. That's the fundamental disconnect is you remove people from the airplane. You're not limited by the biological constraints of carrying a bunch of people around. And now you can do things with the aircraft that 
may not be conducive from from the perspective of looking and feeling like a normal aircraft in the airspace still. So let's say we deployed autonomous aircraft and 10 years later after it's been initially deployed, what's the what's the value that's going to be recognized as a result of autonomous autonomy that most people don't think about today? Well, I think the big thing is we'll be able to do things with aircraft that we can't do today. Um, Give an example if you could. Yeah, one one thing that came out in the early days, well, I guess the pandemic has sort of brought to the public sort of forefront <laughs> conversation is is the vulnerabilities of supply chains based on the fact that there are there are people involved in those supply chains, right? As, as, we kind of we use the word supply chain as if there's just these mm-hmm. machines sort of moving around a factory or something. In in reality, there's people involved in in every link of the supply chain, right? And and that was and that's very true in aviation as well. If you have an aircraft that is carrying two pilots, four pilots, whatever, uh, a bunch of people, and you take them from point A to point B with you, now they're you're constrained by having those people there, needing to get them back, needing to uh, swap out crews, etc. And you know, in the early days of the pandemic, there were stories that came out about you know FedEx pilots in China being sprayed down with disinfectant. <laughs> Right. It's kind of crazy stuff. Or, you know, even the thought of, wow, you know, if this virus starts to spread and and we can't contain, uh, we we can't contain the spread, you know, how are we going to do things like air traffic control where people need to be in the same room talking in close proximity with each other? How how are you going to have people moving around an airplane? It sort of exposed a lot of those vulnerabilities that we have that we don't think about every day. If you're able to reduce the dependency on people being with the aircraft, being with any physical asset uh, as it as it does its job, you can decouple the human aspect of the supply chain from the, the machine aspect of the supply chain. And that your average person may not sort of appreciate that <laughs> in the end, but they'll get they'll get what they need out of that supply chain, whether it's a you know a package or medicine or even being able to travel somewhere. So I want to go back to uh, to how we ultimately get there and back to the standards development and, and the regulatory path. If the standards have been developed four or five years ago, why are we not seeing regulators approve autonomy or what is the what's the current position of the regulators in terms of a path to to autonomy rulemaking? I yeah, I guess I would take the opportunity to to say that we are we are making progress. The community is is making progress. You know, for example, we just uh, my the company just finished up a round of uh, flight demonstrations out in the UK. We took a prototype article of a of a new product that we call Sky Guardian, uh, basically an MQ9 uh, that's been upgraded for certification. So it'll, it'll be a certified aircraft. We've we've integrated a bunch of technologies uh, like detect and avoid, um, like a flight management system for navigation that that enable it to fly through civilian airspace. And then we've been flying that in the US for years, but we finally got an opportunity to take it over to the UK and and actually demonstrate a point A to point B flight where Nats, the, the air traffic, the civilian air traffic controller was able to basically treat it like any other uh, civilian aircraft. Definitely the hardest part from a technology perspective is the, the radar surveillance piece. Certainly the, the air-to-air radar problem is a big challenge. Tracking multiple aircraft with different priorities, different dynamics, you know, while the, while the aircraft is, is moving, you know, that, that's a hard problem that up until this point, I would say, has been the purview of nation states. I mean, that that's really U.S. Air Force level of the involvement and funding 
to develop those systems. And and they've been, you know, the U.S. government has been pretty stingy with those systems. We we do not give AISA technology away lightly. Uh, that's that's a really key sort of national capability. So trying to bring that technology into the civilian aviation space was a pretty daunting challenge. You know, my my company has um, has developed an air-to-air radar that's specific for the detect and avoid application. But you know, it's it's a high power system. It's it's takes a lot of energy. This is when we go back to the physics problem. It takes a lot of energy to detect a human-sized target at at six miles. So so there's definitely a big gap when it comes to getting that technology down to the scale that could fit on a I mean even you know piston-powered type of aircraft uh, just because you've, you've got to generate a pretty good um, pretty good amount of wattage uh, when, when, when we talk about translating that to the, the small UAS world I think ultimately again this goes back to coming into an ecosystem that we're coming into this aviation ecosystem where there's an expectation among the a large percentage of the users of the US airspace that they will not have to Equip with a transponder, you know, or ADSB, or any any sort of device that would make it easier to detect them. And so, we talk about small UAS. I think that one of the biggest challenges right now is how do you provide surveillance of non-cooperative aircraft from? If you can't do it from the aircraft, then you got to do it from the ground, and that is a big that's a big challenge. So we've we've developed a standard to do that in the terminal area. I think it's it's sort of easier to think about it around airports or around vertiports. Uh, around infrastructure where you know you've got you've already got power you've already got data and you're going to be conducting let's call it high tempo operations it's much harder to think about that in the context of a rural area that you're only going to visit a couple times and now you're going to plop down you know a big radar to surveil that airspace for what maybe someone might fly through you know so that that's going to take a real either it's going to remain just a really big barrier to entry, or it's going to require some fundamentally different thinking on the part of the of the regulator to solve that problem without applying technology to it. Do you think that this lack of adequate radar capability at the at the form factor and cost level that would support the business case and the size of some of these smaller UAS? Do you think that this opens up an opportunity for specialized service providers to offer some advanced safety critical, if you can call it that way, traffic information systems so that you complement or replace what you would normally get from onboard sensors with systems on the ground? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm, I'm counting on it. <laughs> right. You know, I, I think the, the community has been, I don't want to say skirting around the issue, but there needs to be a more open conversation about the need for third-party service providers to be able to offer, yeah, safety-critical services. And do you um, see that FAA and air Na- uh, navigation service providers, are they open to the idea of sharing their safety critical data streams and radar feeds to you know this emerging industry i think they're open to it there's a couple of examples today you look at some um, third-party providers who develop procedures right navigation procedures like jeppesen or you look at you know the best example right now is arion providing space-based adsb data now the fa hasn't bought into that yet but you see other ansps um, nav canada nats and EASA, you know being fully on board with that so I think that that's definitely the way that it is that things are moving. Um, I also know that as part of the 
the beyond visual line of sight aviation rulemaking committee that's going on right now that that is a large topic of discussion uh, is how to enable third-party service providers to provide those safety critical services but i it, it's all again we need to remember that we're coming into a, a certain environment here it's a touchy subject because every however many years there's a serious discussion in the u.s about quote privatizing air traffic and so there are some people in the community that would see the things that we're talking about as sort of the camel's nose under the tent as a slippery slope to all of a sudden, you know, the FAA air traffic organization is going to be privatized. So it's it's not an easy conversation. And if and if people are coming into the conversation not aware of that background, you know, there, there's some serious landmines that they can step on. What's the relationship between autonomy and the privatization of air traffic? The, the idea of any service provider, right, be it, you know, the FAA, the, the role that the FAA currently plays, or a third party that could come along in parallel to the FAA to augment the services provided by the FAA in a private way. Really, what, what you're doing there fundamentally is you're distributing the cost of a particular capability, right? So instead mm -hmm. of having to put a, well, yeah, let's, let's use the, the uh, non-cooperative detection as an example. Instead of having to put what may be an expensive air-to-air -air radar on every single aircraft that's going to fly without a pilot on board. If you could distribute that cost and put that capability on the ground and provide that as a service to everyone, mm -hmm. it, it's obviously going to, not obviously, it will most likely be a more efficient way to provide that capability to the entire ecosystem, right? So that's, right. that's the relationship is, you know, right. taking... You know, yes, you're, you're going for a, an autonomous aircraft, for an aircraft that's remotely piloted. You're going to need a certain amount of capability on board just to land safely, right, if, if you lose all connection to the outside world. That's sort of, there's some basic minimum capability that has to be on board the aircraft. But I think what we're going to find is for everything else, you want to you wanna take that off the aircraft. You want to put mm -hmm. that on, on the ground, in the mm -hmm. cloud, you know, pick your analogy. <laughs> And, and you're going to want to try to provide that as a service so the service provider can maximize their reach and a particular OEM doesn't have to develop, you know, X, Y, and Z capabilities. What are some of the other technology gaps? Where should aspiring entrepreneurs be innovating? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think navigation is an underappreciated problem. Aviation's use of GPS is, is very different. I would say from how GPS is used in, in many other spheres of our life. Aviation's fairly conservative, right? So you have these very high integrity, high, you know, certainty applications of GPS. Most people underappreciate that the vertical accuracy of GPS is very is actually really poor compared to what you would need in order to, you know, avoid obstacles and terrain the way that I think most people would think an aircraft should be able to. So I, I would say there's a big gap right now in how do we augment, you know, we obviously need GPS, GNSS more broadly. Um, I think we're going to rely on the classic, you know, VOR, DME, ILS infrastructure that exists in the U.S. and most of the developed aviation world. But there's going to be other technologies that need to come alongside those classic capabilities to either augment or operate during situations where those classic capabilities are not available. 
an aug unaugmented aviation GNSS receiver or GPS receiver is not going to get you uh, multiple operations onto a rooftop vertical port, for example. It's not going to get your package delivery uh, drone down the city street. It, it's just it's it just doesn't it can't do that. You know, e even though we walk around with our cell phones and we think that it's providing a very accurate location based on GPS, there's a lot a lot that we don't see. Uh, and we don't appreciate about what's going on there. And I'll just go back to, you know, aviation just treats those things very different from other areas of our life where we're using those technologies. Let's go to uh, trust and building trust in, in autonomous systems. How do we do that? How do we get comfortable enough? How do we achieve this behavioral predictability that supports all traditional safety insurance methods and standards that exist in, in aviation today? I think to some extent, the community is got a choice ahead of it. There are some people that are going to say, you know, look, everyone, we just can't need to roll up our sleeves, do the hard work, you know, build in the redundancy and independence and design assurance and, you know, just sort of just follow the process and, you know, just, just get on with it. You know, there's a segment of the community that is trying to responsibly rethink the process, the software design process standards are a great example of this. You know, aviation's relied on DO 178 for, I don't know, 30, 40 years now. And, it, and it's been it's been great for the, you know, it's produced high quality, high integrity software for aviation, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to these complex software intensive applications where almost anything on one of these autonomous aircraft is going to be high criticality you know, ultimately to, to build trust. I really don't think that we are going to build trust with just more, more flying, more time. I'm not sure that that mentality works for highly automated or autonomous aircraft. When an accident happens today, it's sort of easy, easy, quote unquote, for the general public to, to blame the pilot. You know, it's, it's sort of easy to blame the people that are dead after an accident or, or at least make make themselves sort of feel like they can understand that. I mean, obviously with an autonomous aircraft, there's no one on board. The OEM, the, the manufacturer, the operator is now squarely in the crosshairs. So, you know, no one can escape from that, from that glare now. And if you build up millions and millions and millions of hours, and then there's an accident, it's going to be extremely easy for everyone to just forget about all those all those hours. I actually watched all of the testimony uh, that the Boeing executives did in front of Congress last year as part of their, you know, oversight investigation into this 737 MAX accidents. And I was really struck by uh, the chief engineer at Boeing who basically said, look, this was the same system that had over 200 million flight hours that had performed flawlessly for over the life of the fleet, you know, which is an accurate answer, quantifiable. You know, he, he was almost literally quoting the system safety guidelines, you know, mm -hmm. using all those same words. And yet, you know, there were however many 40 families sitting behind him, you know, wanting answers for why it had failed in this particular case. So I think it's a it's a different animal, basically. I, I do think that modeling simulation, you know, to kind of go back to, okay, I'm an engineer, I can't help it, right? Mo modeling simulation does allow for us as manufacturers, as operators, as an industry to produce a really substantial amount of evidence or information that could be publicly consumable, right? That, that your average member of the public could understand that would basically show how 
this autonomous aircraft is going to react in any situation, right? Just just pick a situation, you know, solely landing on the Hudson, you know, Sioux City accident, you've got hydraulic systems failing all over the place, right? You know, the Air France accident over the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, you can just just keep just keep throwing things out and we will simulate, we'll model everything and we'll we'll show everyone how this aircraft handles all of the what if scenarios and i think there's actually more power in that approach and being actually transparent you know and and basically just putting all the cards on the table here here are all here are all the scenarios you know tell us tell us which ones we missed and we'll go run those as well where are you seeing some of these quote mistakes in in approaches if you have some examples of it yeah i think there's a lot of work around flight planning or strategic deconfliction, you know, trying to ensure that flight plans and trajectories are conflict-free before the aircraft takes off. And there's there's a place for that, you know, if, for fleet operators and for highly controlled environments. But I think there's probably too much emphasis being placed in that particular area. And then, you know, I, I'll just keep going back to communication. I, you know, there's, well, let me, let me use this as an opportunity to basically highlight where I think you know, WISC and, and others like them who are trying to, to introduce their products at a very high level of automation are, are going to get right, which is we we do in some ways need to change the system to, to enable autonomous aircraft at a large scale. A, a set of flight rules that could sit, sit alongside in parallel with the existing instrument flight rules and visual flight rules that would allow the flexibility of VFR, but with the ability to access airspace and airports that today require you to fly under instrument flight rules. So ultimately, I see a, a change to the NAS on the level. This would, be a, this would be an extremely big change, right? We're talking technology, we're talking standards, service providers, you know, rulemaking, but ultimately that that is the level of change that is needed to get to a point where you would see routine commercial operations of autonomous aircraft on a, on, on a large scale around the U.S. When we think about the current drone operators, uh, small package delivery or medical deliveries or you know the likes of Zipline and Wing and, and some of the others, a lot of them claim and, and practice a certain level of automation in their vehicles and operations. What level of autonomy do these operations typically include? Yeah, I think that that's one of the challenges with even actually just talking about autonomy is it's hard to define what we're actually talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think in some ways, the automotive industry is illustrative of sort of the pros and cons of trying to simplify the discussion, right? So you had the five levels of autonomy in the automotive industry, and that sort of helped people to wrap their head around what was going on. But in reality, for, for engineers, it's sort of completely irrelevant. <laughs> like it's not even not even helpful. So I every discussion that I've ever had in a serious way about autonomy, we end up sort of coming back to okay, what functions are we actually talking about here, right? Which I think is what what you're asking basically. You know, you, you could argue certain functions are already autonomous on airline aircraft, you know, transport category aircraft today. Right? I mean, you look at a, a Cat 3 ILS Autoland on a 777, okay, you know, the pilot is monitoring the system and can intervene. But if the pilot doesn't do anything, the aircraft is going to land and break itself. And so that's 
in a lot of ways, already an autonomous operation. I think what you know, Zipline and Wing are doing is they've, they've obviously automated the majority of the functions on the aircraft. Obviously, things like stability, they, they had to automate to even get off the ground, right? Navigation, flight planning, I'm sure to some extent, contingency management. I think the hard things to automate, or to, I should say to certify, are going to end up being the things that we actually rely the most on humans today for, you know, contingency management and emergency management. If you think right. about it, we Where judgment are, is most needed. Exactly. And and very quick judgment that is actually drawing on all of those years of training, all of that time in the simulator, all the times where they were sort of bored on a flight deck and thinking through what ifs in their head. All of that comes to play in that instant where they have to make a decision. Where do I put the airplane down? Or, you know, do I do I try to keep going? You know, those sorts right. of well, one might sure. argue, you know, you run these neural networks and AI systems through thousands of such edge cases, and ultimately you end up with a pattern of quasi-predictable behavior. Is that not good enough? Is that even the path? Yeah, I, I think ultimately when we talk about big airplanes, right, where we're, we're, we're going to certify to, let's just say, like a Part 25-like standard transport category aircraft standard. I, yeah, I, I think you're going to have to be able to predict what the aircraft is going to do in situations. So you may not be able to predict it in real time because you may not have all of the, the information that the aircraft has, but it, as part of the certification process, you know, in the lab, in the, in the hardware, in the loop lab, you're going to have to run that hardware and software through all of those edge cases and, and predict and demonstrate that it's doing what you predicted it was going to do. So for all of those entrepreneurs developing autonomous capability, how should they think about certifying an autonomous aircraft? What does that add to their business plans? Yeah, to me, the, the big thing is thinking about what's the next best alternative to whatever capability an entrepreneur is working on. The, the example I always go back to, because I've studied this problem a lot, is pipeline surveillance, uh, which sounds fairly mundane, but you know, it's one of those things, you mentioned in the beginning, the sort of classic the 3Ds, the dull, dirty, dangerous, uh, that the military has historically used for sort of thinking through when it makes sense to bring a, an unmanned aircraft. And, you know, pipeline surveillance is sort of the classic dull yeah. emission. <laughs> However, it's sort of an easy target, let's say, for entrepreneurs to say, I, you know, wow, I can, I can do that in a much smaller form factor, you know, with electric propulsion and, you know, off-the-shelf avionics, open source software, you know, all this stuff, which is which is totally true at a capability level. Challenge is that you're going to be pitching that to a pipeline operator whose minimum requirement from the government is, I don't know exactly, right, but to to basically take pictures of the pipeline once a year, twice a year, four times a year with a commercial camera from 5,000 feet, right? And I'm going to just assume that every pipeline operator in the United States wants to do that job very safely and wants to do a good job at it, but they don't need to really go beyond that requirement too far. And now if, if you come with an automated aircraft, now they've got to figure out how the insurance is going to cover that. Can they, can they use that data in the same way they use the the two guys in the 172 with a Nikon camera, you know, what do they do with all this metadata and all this new, you know, new data that you're giving them, right? So we sometimes idolize these high tech solutions to problems when in reality, the customers may not need to bring that much technology to bear. So you really got to think through the next best alternative to whatever, <laughs> whatever 
whatever you're proposing. What would be the top three points you would make to an airline CEO as it relates to how he or she should be thinking about autonomy in the next five to 50 years and the value of autonomy to his or her airline? I think from an airline operations perspective, the real, so there's there's two ways that, that value really gets added. One is, I was talking about earlier, you know, decoupling the the people in the operation from from the aircraft flying around the country or around the world. Right. That has big implications, both from, um, you know, a scheduling perspective, uh, but also from a utilization perspective, right? So airlines need to think about how they might operate their networks or their aircraft if they weren't constrained by having to match up people and aircraft at every stop in every destination. I think that will open up, of course, there's a lot of other variables around the actual cargo, you know, timings and or just the other aspects of airline scheduling, maintenance and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think that opens up a lot of possibilities. The other big thing to think about is centralizing certain aspects of airline operations brings huge efficiencies of scale, right? So, and, and they already do this to some extent with things like their dispatchers and their maintenance centers and weather services and all those things. But now if you start to centralize pilot services and you can start to utilize those people, you you, you can start to utilize those people way more effectively than you ever could when they're tied to a particular aircraft and now moving all over the country in real time. And, And I think that we'll see that open up different network topologies for the airlines uh, so the you know the, the big the big thing in cargo operations right now is thinking through a switch from hub and spoke to point to point operations and that that may be enabled by uh, these autonomous aircraft coming into the market when it comes to overseeing multiple flights at some point you know it becomes too too big of an ask too much and too fast for humans to be able to oversee uh, all of these increasingly autonomous uh, operations in aircraft just think about looking at three video games at the same time right it, <laughs> or three uh, or, or 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 three webex you know zoom calls at the same time right there's a lot we've we've learned from the air traffic control community right so you know atc does quite a bit in terms of balancing the sector capacities and the number of people that are managing a particular sector or center. So there there are some things we could learn from that. I think ultimately the regulators are going to require the aircraft to be safe from a from a system safety perspective, even if the humans are taken out of the loop, you know, for for larger aircraft. And and usually when we talk about that, we mean losing, you know, the C2 link becoming unavailable, a, a lost link event. So I think we're going to have to show to whatever the safety target is, 10 to the minus nine, 10 to the minus seven, 10 to the minus three, whatever, that if that link becomes unavailable, the aircraft, it's going to behave in the way that is predictable, uh, that's been pre-coordinated, pre-approved, and the outcome in that case meets the safety levels that are are established for the Mm -hmm. airspace and for the operation. Do you see differences in how different countries or different regions think about certified autonomy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that different societies have different tolerances for risk. There's been a lot of uh, debate over the pros and cons of a lot of startups these days uh, starting operations overseas, right? So you look at what Zipline has done in Africa, and you know, 
which, which is tremendous. I mean, I have I have a ton of respect for what they've been what they've been able to do. I think they've obviously impacted a lot of uh, a lot of lives over there in a positive way, and, and have shown that those operations can be conducted in a safe way. At at the same time, it's not uh, not not to pick on Zipline, but using them as an example of co- companies that pivot to overseas operations to to get up and running. It's not clear to me at all that any of that data, uh, any of those operations are are directly usable in the certification process. And maybe we've that's seen that. Yeah, we've seen that happen with military UAS. Well, I, I mean, heck, shoot, it's like our company, we've got over 7 million flight hours now. Right. And uh, frankly, I'm not sure how any of that data is useful in the civilian context for a commercial certification program. Yeah, but if you're if you're trying to recreate an operational environment that is very, you can you can take it from Africa and put it into a a certain rural remote area in the U.S. Why would that data not be appreciated enough? Yeah, so there's two answers to that. One is sort of the the nerdy answer, right? Which <laughs> which is you know, things like mundane things like configuration management and data collection and storage and differences in the operational environment and differences in software and all this stuff, right? Um, which, which is generally the problem in our case, right? We've, those 7 million flight hours are amassed over 20, 30 different configurations of aircraft. And we don't even have access to a lot of the data because it's held in by the military or it's classified or whatever. On the more societal side, I I go back to a the, the general societal acceptance of risk. So it's it's part of the, you know, not in my backyard challenge that we see in around aviation today with noise. I fly out of a couple of general aviation airports here in Southern California, and there are people that no matter how much data you show them, they will resist any uh, anything going on at the airport, anything having to do with airplanes, they'll just resist it. There's also, you know, a, okay, if an airplane crashes how, how do people respond to that right do they think about all of the positive things that it, that that aircraft operation provides or do they just look at a the burning remains of an aircraft and think about how dangerous it is and how how crazy it is that that's happening in their country um, i i think there's a deeper societal aspect to that that maybe it's generational maybe it's cultural i'm not i'm not quite sure <laughs> If I am one of those drone service providers, operators that um, you know, I've set up some operations somewhere outside of the U.S., or I'm doing a small pilot in the U.S., and I want to scale that out, if not coming to the regulators with with hundreds and thousands of hours showing, you know, showing failure rates, building up the entire safety case, what other things should I be thinking about or doing? It's pretty tricky because I know that um, I, I, I I'm very sympathetic to the fact that the traditional way of doing certification in aviation really just does not apply well to the to the size and scale of the aircraft that we're generally talking about in the you know package delivery or consumer drone kind of world and i share the frustration of many of them or i guess all of the applicants to the fa right now that uh, uas type certification applicants when you know the fa put out a policy memo couple of weeks ago, basically decoupling the control station from the aircraft and pulling back all those G1 issue papers saying that they're going to now only certify the aircraft and do some other operational approval process for the control station. I mean, that's that's incredibly frustrating. Many of, you know, sort of household names have been working on this for a long time, and they all had their issue papers issued at the same time. Uh, There was a big, you know, press release and a lot of fanfare around that. 
And many people thought, okay, great. You know, they've got their certification basis. Now they're just off and running. Now it's just a, a race to the finish line. And then a few weeks ago, you know, this policy memo came out where basically they, the FAA redrew the lines of de demarcation basically and said that the air, we'll, we'll give you a type certificate for the aircraft, the thing that's in the air, but for nothing else. Everything else, your data link, your navigation systems, what, what they call the associated elements, your launch and recovery systems, and your control stations will be approved by flight standards through an operational approval. But they didn't detail out how that would actually be achieved. And, and so it, it left, yeah, it just, it leaves more questions than answers, basically. What should entrepreneurs do then? How should they think about this you know, challenge of building up uh, an adequate enough safety case that doesn't just add data. I would say to an entrepreneur right now, it, it would not be reasonable to expect to start building aircraft in a garage and go through a type certification process with the FAA to operate that aircraft on a routine basis beyond visual line of sight. It, it, they're just, we, we are far away from that point where a new company could just stand up with all of the tools that it needs to make that happen. But at the same time, I know that there are a lot of companies that are have really successful businesses around beyond visual line of sight operations. I, I have a friend who's the CEO of a company called Greensight out in Massachusetts, and they're they're doing data collection for agricultural and like golf courses and things like that. They're doing great. They figured out how to do waivers under Part 107, and you know they're off and running. They've got the right level of ambition on what they're trying to do you know they're not mm -hmm. they're not trying to fly across the country they're not trying to fly at 5,000 feet right they're trying to stay over a golf course right. where no one else should be flying below the tree line right it, you, know, you start stacking up all of the constraints to get the business done without opening yourself up to uh, an unattainable level of mm -hmm. basically. what can the civil sector learn from the military on the topic of autonomy? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, one, I mean, to, to tie this back to our conversation about acceptance of risk, I mean, obviously the military is willing and able to accept risk, not in an irresponsible way. I think, I think that's often a misunderstanding. There's this, there's this sense that, you know, the military is just out there kind of doing crazy stuff. I, there's some of that going on, but you know, the, my observation of how the military is doing this is extremely careful, very responsible, very cognizant of matching the level of risk that they're willing to accept with the operational environment. Uh, and I think there's a lot that, I mean, the FAA is, the, the FAA is there. I mean, they're, they're, you know, before Wes Ryan left the FAA, you know, he was talking in a very profound way about the safety continuum, right? And the level, the expectation of safety that the public has for different aircraft and different operations. And I think, you know, really the military has just embraced that concept. And they may not use those words, but, you know, you look at the way that they've done airworthiness certification for Gray Eagle, for example. I mean, they created a new category in the airworthiness regulations to allow themselves to apply the appropriate level of rigor to that aircraft, which has been a very successful aircraft, very successful system, and and everyone recognized from the very beginning, well, there's there's no human life on board. So let's think about this differently. The, the, the other thing just at a technical level, I guess I would say is in, in, in the autonomy space is that the military has been willing to take on some of the especially difficult aspects. So the government has actually been developing a, a suite of algorithms, a suite of software that they then provide as government furnished to OEMs to integrate. So that's actually been a real success for General Atomics in, in working with uh, AFRL in that 
we've so we've flown their autonomy engine on our unmanned aircraft you know so that's the government recognizing that you know okay we need to own and not from an acquisition perspective but from a sort of liability risk perspective we need to own the really hard part here and we need to unburden the manufacturers from doing that that's been really successful so if if you translate that into the civilian world again different words but (laughs) same ideas right you you look at tcas is a great example right tcas and and now with ACAS and ACASX, you know, those are government provided algorithms that solve arguably one of the hardest problems of all this collision avoidance, right? So ACAS XA is for you know a direct replacement for TCAS2 on transport category aircraft. ACAS XU is a system that would meet all the detect and avoid requirements for automated aircraft. ACAS XR is meant for rotorcraft, which is really being aimed now at the urban air mobility community, which I think is a great development over the last year. And ACAS SXU is a variant that's aimed at the small UAS community looking at integrating into UTM service providers. So you know, that's the FAA stepping up, doing the hard development activity to the level of rigor that they're satisfied with, and then providing that to the community to be an enabler, right? That's that's a really good example of that. Connection. How far along are they in that effort, specifically for the uh, ACAS SXU? Yeah, they, they are about a year away from the standard. So it, it's, in, it's in the standard development process. RTCA Special Committee 147 is working on that. They've got a few partners that are uh, deploying the algorithms and testing them. And uh, yeah, they're they're pretty far along. If you fast forward five years and 10 years, what does the industry look like? Yeah, I think there's going to be a much smaller number of, of OEMs. I, I, I guess consolidation is always easy to predict in the sort of you know beginning phases of, of any industry like this. But um, I think aviation just lends itself naturally to larger OEMs that can scale and, and bring you know, really mass to the problem. I honestly, I, I think that we're going to see a high profile accident. And to go back to our earlier point about societal acceptance of risk, I, I think that should be okay. I, I think we, we shouldn't be scared of that. I mean, we should obviously do everything we can to prevent that. But I, I think that there are going to be a small number of OEMs that have the momentum, the stability to to basically withstand that shock to the system. And that, that may be end up what, what ends up uh, sort of- This is in the out. five or the 10 year scale? Yeah, there, there's a lot of flight testing going on. I, I think <laughs> that's going to be in the five year time scale. <laughs> What would you, in a, in a minute or so, what would you say are the highlights and the most important points you'd like to get across to somebody? Yeah, I, w- I would say that um, it's important to remember, realize, incorporate the fact that commercial aviation is a highly regulated, established community with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of people and companies looking to protect the status quo. We have to we have to be a part of the system. We have to understand the system, understand the ecosystem if we're going to change it. And I think ultimately, ultimately, in order for autonomous aircraft to scale and to really provide the, the most benefit that I know that they have the potential to uh, provide to the world, we're going to need to responsibly change the system in certain ways to enable that. And and I and I think we got to be you know, eyes wide open about that and uh, and do that in a uh, a very methodical and and uh, and a way, frankly, that maintains the extremely high level of safety that um, that everyone's used to today. I love thinking about the outcomes of what we're trying to bring about, and as we think about autonomy and we think about 
advanced dermobility. Uh, Brandon, what outcomes do you think will be most felt by the, the lay public? Yeah, I think overall, I think more people will have access to aviation. I often say that one of the most incredible things about being a general aviation pilot is being able to hop in an airplane and go somewhere, <laughs> uh, go, go somewhere that, you know, you may not be able to get to or may not be able to easily get to uh, in a car or public transportation or whatever. And ultimately, the more people that have access to that capability, you know, the better off we all are. I had this visual on the mind of your you know, average sort of traveling public looking out their window in their 737 or 777 and seeing an aircraft with no windshield and no windows taxiing right next to or right behind or right in front of their airplane. To me, that's, you know, that's going to be the the day that we know we've uh, we've really arrived. Brandon, thank you so much for being here with us today and uh, sharing all of that insight. It was a fascinating conversation, and we'd love to have you back on the show at some point. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, uh, thank you for your time and and for this uh, for these questions. It's really just a lot of fun to be able to unspool, and um, I, I look forward to uh, keeping the conversation going. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the Vertical Space Podcast. Reach out if there are topics that you would like us to discuss and goodbye until the next episode. Unless mentioned, this podcast is in no way endorsing or promoting any person and or company mentioned and all opinions within the podcast are solely that of the presenters. The Vertical Space makes no guarantees, warranty or representation of any information given in this podcast. Any information given is for informational purposes and should be used at your own risk. This podcast is for general, educational, and entertainment purposes only.